Hello, welcome to the Data Science Salon podcast. I'm your host, Q McCallum, AI consultant, writer, and senior content advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind this podcast. When people think about the Home Depot, they probably think more about lumber and tile than they do machine learning models. Sure, there is plenty of lumber, uh, but machine learning also plays a key role in the business in places that customers can see as well as the behind-the-scenes operations. I met up with Pat Wuong, Director of Data Science at the Home Depot, to explore how the company mixes their very rich data set with domain knowledge to employ machine learning deep inside the business. To frame this, Pat walked me through two projects that his team deployed to address the unique challenges of a company that handles both retail and services. During our conversation, we discussed understanding where models fit into the bigger business picture, using expert domain knowledge to drive feature selection and feature engineering, the value of process, and, to top it off, what it's like to work at the Home Depot. And with that, let's get started. All right. So, Pat, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, Q. Thanks for having me on. Something I like to do with all of our guests is we spend a few minutes talking about who they are and their background and all of that. Uh, That gives our listeners a chance to understand a little bit more about your background and your role. And I think that really sets the tone for some of the deeper topics we're going to cover today. So given that, um, let's talk a little bit about who you are and what's your role and what's your day-to-day work like? Yeah, so I have an um, interesting background. Um, I know this is a data science podcast, and uh, my my career history definitely did not start in the data science world. Currently, um, I am a director of data science for home services uh, at Home Depot, and um, my day-to-day is very much... Um, you know, as, as a director, you kind of have to deal with a lot of things that you may not have to deal with. You're not as much as in the weeds, um, lots of meetings and things like that. But the, the favorite thing that I get to do every day is to work on really, really complex business problems that help move our business forward. Um, I think it's, it's interesting at the vantage point that I sit at to be able to see how data science can solve problems when um, it's not very apparent to a lot of other operators within the business um, of what the capabilities that data science tooling and cap- or solutions can offer. Makes sense to me. Now, let's dig in a bit more. Let's talk about your background. So you mentioned that you didn't exactly have the most linear path into this field we now call data science or AI, whatever we're calling it this year. Uh, and I think that's, that's something I hear from a lot of our guests. Uh, same thing for me as well. I mean, this field Technically, this field, we can say it's like, what, maybe 10, 12 years old, something along those lines. And a lot of us came from some path before that. So what was your path into this field? Yeah, so I started in software engineering, um, specifically in web application architecture. So I've been working at Home Depot for about 12 and a half years now. And uh, my first job there was to maintain our Tomcat grid. Um, It was essentially a, a... an on-prem cloud, if you will. And we used it to deploy all of the web apps that supported our uh, .com infrastructure, as well as internal web application infrastructure for the entire company. Now, it doesn't really exist anymore, but you know, when I, when I first joined 12, year, 12 years ago, this was before Google Cloud really took off. And you know, AWS was a thing, but not a lot of people had been using it yet. So when I got to learn how those types of technologies could scale businesses that was really, really enlightening to me. Um, I'd never seen anything like that before. And, you know, they don't teach that to you in school. And uh, it's just so awesome to see people that have been working in a, in a profession like that uh, and scaling things like that. So from there, it really, uh, my career kind of took off from there. Um, I did MA for a little bit. Um, that is like integrating companies that home people wanted to acquire. Um, and then I moved into a space where I was uh, I was asked to build uh, tooling for our Teradata retirement. Home Depot had one of the largest Teradata deployments in the entire world. Uh, we 
were challenged as a team to figure out how we could move our Teradata EDW uh, enterprise data warehouse to, to BigQuery. Um, nothing like that had been done before. Um, Google Google uh, BigQuery was pretty nascent at the time in terms of its penetration in the, in the business world. And no one knew how to move the petabyte size database from with, with all the structure that was there into GCP. So uh, the team that I built definitely had a lot of challenges. Um, and we moved, we were able to build tooling and move quite a lot of data and build a, a, essentially a resilient pipeline that allowed other business teams to begin facilitating their own movement to GCP. Um, and then from there, I did a, I, I was asked to lead the um, Home Depot Enterprise uh, AI ML team on the IT side of Home Depot. And on that team, we kind of acted as like con internal consultants. The, the interesting thing about that, be before I get into like the details of what we actually did on that team was I didn't know anything about machine learning at the time when I was asked to lead this team. I was pretty, I felt like, you know, a, a massive imposter at the time when I was, when I was, um, when I was working on that team. Uh, there was so much stuff that I didn't know a lot of language that was being talked about or uh, jargon that was being said that I had no idea what people were, were saying at the time. I didn't know what a decision tree was. I didn't know <laughs> what a what a cost function was, none of, none of that stuff. So I was playing massive catch up at the time with all of my peers and they they definitely helped. Uh, they helped me understand what what I needed to do in order to um, to be successful in that role. So in, in that one, that's basically where I learned learn the business side of how to do data science implementation, what machine learning really was. Uh, we kind of acted as internal consultants for the company. And uh, we went and uh, sat with business teams and asked them what kind of problems they had. And then we figured out if machine learning or some type of modeling solution was the right approach to solve them. And then from there, I, I joined the Home Depot business side and uh, began leading the team that I'm leading right now. And the, the scope of the work has grown dramatically. Instead of you know doing one-off, one-hit um, one projects for various teams, it's creating more like an ecosystem of data science capabilities now. Um, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking about projects and how they, how they build on top of one another and scale. So I don't want to take us too far down a rabbit hole, but I would like to dig into a couple of things you said there. It really, really caught my interest. You know, so one, you mentioned this notion of you didn't really know that much about machine learning or AI when you first entered that particular role. And so you said you had to you know, play a lot of catch up. How did you catch up then? Like, what were your techniques? I think the first thing that I did was I took Andrew Ng's uh, Coursera course. That was step one for me. Um, and then dusted off the old uh, calculus, even though he says that you don't need calculus, it definitely helps when you're taking it. <laughs> um, um, and then I, I worked with uh, an incredible data scientist. His name is Sashi Gandavarapu. He's, he's currently a director or senior director at Georgia Pacific now. But he basically taught me everything that I know about machine learning. And he had recently just finished um, a master's degree at Stanford uh, as well. So like he was, um, he was instrumental in my, my, my personal development on how that worked. And basically I just had someone who was already an expert that I could ask questions to every day, sat right next to me. I uh, would explain things to me. And then, and what's funny about that is, you know, he didn't really understand um, enterprise architecture or software architecture. So we, we had a very symbiotic relationship when it came to teaching each other about our own specialties. And then, um, you know, our friendship grew, we still hang out and see each other pretty regularly. And um, that's kind of how, how I played catch up. Um, obviously did a lot of studying on my own, but you know, I had someone there to guide me along the way. Sounds great. And that actually dovetails with something you mentioned early in the conversation where you mentioned that, you know, you were talking about building out these Tomcat clusters and how you said, they don't really teach you this stuff at school. You know, something I'm hearing from you that I hear from a number of people in tech is that you know, one of the strongest skills we have, it's 
it's our ability to learn. We effectively learn how to learn. So, I mean, yes, you learn how to build out Tomcat clusters, you learn about AI and that sort of thing. But what you really learn along the way is just how to take in a lot of new information and adapt to a new environment and move, move forward from there. So I think, yes, your, your colleague Sashi deserves some credit, but you know, don't cut yourself short. I think you <laughs> learning how to learn and just keeping that in mind carried you very far. Most definitely. And I mean, yeah, def- it, it's, it's, it's both, it's multifaceted, right? Like, I, like you were saying, it's um, being an engineer is, is a mindset in how you approach problem solving and how you take in new information. But he definitely helped with the acceleration of that. I mean, like filtering down to just the things that you need to know without having to, like you said before, go down rabbit holes in some cases and filter out extraneous information. I think uh, having having someone someone there that can that can guide you is is really really nice. I mean, obviously, we could all learn on our own just by reading, and that's actually my preferred method for sure. Um, but yeah, it was it was just nice to have someone there that could uh, shepherd shepherd me along. You also said something interesting about being those internal consultants to the other business departments in the Home Depot. I've seen a variety of scenarios here, right? Sometimes there's a very strong appetite from the business for AI and machine learning. So when someone walks in and says, hey, I do AI, the business departments are very interested. In other cases, they're a little too interested and they want to apply AI where it doesn't fit. And in other times, in other cases, business departments are very skeptical of AI and machine learning and data science, right? Sometimes their view is, oh, I don't need this. I have enough information, so on and so forth. So when you think back to your days being that internal consultant at the Home Depot, working with these business units, where would you place the the business appetite for data science? Were you and your team just overwhelmed with requests or did you have to sort of convince people that no, this really is useful? Yeah, that's a good question. At the time, we spent a lot of time convincing people that they needed to do it. Um, And, you know, even if we found a really, really good application for it, sometimes we would say, this is not a good fit for this team because either A, they couldn't support it from a technical perspective, or B, they didn't understand how to engineer a process around whatever we needed to build. And we kind of had to do uh, our own evaluation on whether or not the project would end up being successful. And we would sometimes pull a plug because it wouldn't work out. There were a lot of really great problems that I think now the teams, uh, since that was more like four years ago, I think the teams are more um, aware of what data science is across the company. But at the time, it was too new. Uh, the, the model that we, that we kind of got um, famous for within the company, the shelf out model, uh, took, like we had a model that was ready to go after, I would say, eight months. It was ready for production. And when it was in its productions or when it was uh, ready to go, ready to roll out to the entire company, we got stuck at the pilot phase for almost a year. Wow. Yeah. And it wasn't a technical complication that we got stuck at. It was a, uh, it was, uh, I, I mean, personally, I think that um, it might've just been too scary to let that level of tasking uh, be automated um, and, and letting go of the control that they had before with all of the uh, business rules around it. Um, essentially what we were doing, just for, for those of you that don't know, um, we were trying to figure out a way to task, um, maybe, maybe task isn't the right word, but um, send, send notifications to uh, associates in the store that there was a problem with a particular product where the inventory said it was there but it wasn't on the shelf. So if someone tried to come and buy the thing, whether they went online and looked at it, they wouldn't be able to find it in there. And that causes a really, really poor customer experience. Everybody goes through that. So we, yeah, we got stuck in that pilot phase for a year and um, we really got lucky with how it, how it all happened. So we were sitting in a conference room one day and uh, this guy walks in the conference room and he says, uh, we, were, we were talking about on-shelf availability, and he says, um, what's the one thing that you would do right now if you could fix on-shelf availability? And we said, obviously, roll this out. Um, and that, that, ended, that person ended up being one of the SVPs of store operations, Mark Brown at the time. And then he gave us the green light, and 
within a month, it was fully rolled out to the entire company. Wow. Yeah, I've heard of getting executive buy-in before, but that sounds like uh, quite an extreme case. But that's good. It worked out in your favor. Yeah, we got lucky for sure. I, I know we want to get to the main event here, but there's one more question I wanted to ask you just about the world of machine learning at the Home Depot before we move forward. So I can imagine a lot of our listeners, when they think of the Home Depot, right, they're thinking more about lumber and tile than technology and data. So without getting too deep into the weeds here, maybe you can shed a little more light on why specifically the Home Depot built your team. And you know, when it comes to data needs, do you think that the Home Depot's needs differ from those of other retailers? Or do you think you're all kind of pointing in the same direction data-wise? Yeah. Um, so the original need for the team, the genesis of it was for these uh, capabilities, the advanced analytics and machine learning capabilities that can solve and move the needle quite significantly if done well. Um, there was not a data science team before um, my team in home services. And um, I think our leadership knew what it could do, but they didn't have anyone that could one, build out the team, hire the right people to come in and, and build these types of models that would uh, see it all the way to production. I think that that was the thing that they really wanted and they didn't have trust in someone else to build it at the time. Um, so that's basically why our how, our how our team started. And I think, um, you know, to answer or to expand a little bit more upon, upon like why, um, why this is so important is not just to Home Depot, but to other retailers. In the data world in general, um, there's so many things and so many problems that uh, that exist that could either uh, make the customer experience better, make it so that um, products arrive to you faster, make it so that you find what you need faster. And I think the world in general has moved towards this, this idea that whatever I want is available to me immediately. And the technology that we have now basically enables that. Um, and if you're a retailer right now and you're not trying to do that, you'll probably get left in the dust. Definitely. I mean, this is, I think we can thank the uh, early days of the internet for that. I remember when e-commerce was still nowhere near what it is today. People were very skeptical of it. And then one day it's as though someone woke up and realized, oh, wait a minute, if I can shop online, I can shop from anywhere. And for retailers, that meant they could move to more of a warehouse model if need be. And then you fast forward to the present day where we have, we all carry smartphones in our pockets, right? And what this means is that from anywhere, anything that comes to mind, you can just plot your phone, hit up any retailer's app, and it's usually at your house within a day or two. So what you're saying about this, this view that customers have, that if I want something, I can get it almost immediately. It definitely resonates. Yeah, it's crazy that we can, that this capability exists. I mean, I um, I couldn't have imagined a world that that that's like this, you know, even having like voice automation inside of a house, you know, I, I remember watching Back to the Future and, you know, Martin McFly going in Back to the Future too, and he's saying something to the TV and then it happens, but we have that now, which is just insane to me. Yeah, there's a quote. It's it's not mine, but it's something to the effect of, you know, at some point, science fiction just becomes science. And I think working in technology, it means seeing that happen time and time again, which is kind of cool. It's a good place to be. Given that detour, thanks for uh, indulging me there. Let's shift over to the main event. So when you and I were preparing this conversation uh, about a week or so ago, you mentioned a really important story you wanted to tell about a couple of models that you and your team had built. This is pretty much when I'm going to put you in the driver's seat. I can give you a chance to tell our listeners the story. I'll dive in now and then to clarify a couple of details. But I think just to sort of get us started, before we talk about the model itself, let's take a second to talk about the motivation, right? You know, a couple of minutes ago, you talked about understanding business use cases where machine learning will work, where it's suitable for application in the business, where it's not. And so I'd like to learn just a little bit more about what was the actual challenge you and the Home Depot faced that led you down the road of the story you're about to tell us. Um, when, when we first started this team, um, there was no 
there was nothing. Um, there was just basically a, a reporting team and, um, you know, Tableau and some, some SQL queries. And I was like, wow, uh, we have a long way to go to be able to build the capabilities that I wanted uh, to be able to deliver to, to our, our business partners. So um, I had to think really hard about what was the things that we needed to build and how we could scale them. Um, coming from uh, soft, a software engineering background and having scaled lots of other things, that was the first thing that was on my mind. Um, you know, they, they, it's always like your experience kind of leads you down a, a similar path and, and, and you see kind of like the same problems over and over again. Um, so that, that's basically where we started. And uh, for me, one of the biggest uh, hurdles to scaling any data science team is obviously the data and feature stores. So for, for us in home services, um, the biggest piece of data has to do with people's houses and where they live. And Home Depot has a treasure trove of information around that. It just had never been built in a way to allow models to be built off of them very easily. So in the very beginning, we spent about eight months constructing this data set that allows us to, it essentially functions as the foundation of all the models that we build. And since every single model, or when you're talking home services, has to deal with a service that you're going to get done to your house, whether that's an installation, a flooring installation, a cabinet makeover, um, home organization install, anything like that, uh, doors or anything like that, we, we, have to, we have to know a lot of things about your house. So that, that data set that I was talking about that took us eight months to build, we started constructing that. And that, that, that data set consists of all kinds of information about anything that you've ever done to your house. Um, we took in real estate information. We took in uh, information about um, all of the transactions that you've had. And we basically built out a data set that is pre-engineered for points in time. Um, Cause you know, when you're training a model you have to make sure that your, your, uh, your targets are set for whatever point in time that you're, you're setting them at. And uh, originally that, that particular table was only meant for answering or if you're looking at it from the customer data perspective the customer data team only had that table for what was happening right now, but not where that person was living, say, five or six years ago, when you would want to train a model off of that. So we, we essentially had to engineer that entire table and that entire feature store as our foundation for all of our models um, and constantly update it with new information. So that was the biggest piece of engineering that we had to do right out of the gate um, to be able to... Uh, scale the modeling that we've done. Um, the two models that uh, that are, or that we like to, that I'm gonna talk about um, a little bit later are, uh, they're very, I would say maybe not technically from a data science perspective, very advanced, but from a process and um, data perspective, they they're pretty, complex and how they fit into the business. Um, and it wasn't overnight that we were able to build these things. These were, these were multiple, um, multiple generations of other models that were built in front of them to be able to get to where we are right now. We essentially had to convince our leaders that these are the types of problems that we want to build. Like, kind of like I was saying before, we had to get that buy-in. We had to make sure that our uh, business partners were on the same page as us and willing to commit the time, money, and effort to do these things with us. Because uh, we're only a data science and engineering and software engineering team. We don't, we don't do the process engineering. We don't do like how, um, how this is going to fit into an existing part of the business. Or if, it, if it's going to fundamentally change something, how are people going to receive that change? Like if it changes how they operate, how they do their work every day, um, that wasn't, that wasn't, um, or that's not part of our job, but it, it essentially, in order for a data science model to be successful, you have to have partners that are, that are going to help you design those processes around the models themselves, especially um, when you're building operational models where it's not just on a website, it's telling people to do stuff. Um, 
that that whole buy-in process took about i mean it's still ongoing for sure but um we're i think we're in a good place right now but it took about two years to fully get to, to get to where we are right now that sounds like quite a journey but i'll also say you said something a minute ago where you said that the the two models you're going to talk about today they're not very advanced i don't think that's a bad thing you know give me a simple model any day of the week you know especially for the reasons you just mentioned which is this isn't some model that's going to live in isolation this is a model that's going to be plugged into production into various processes into business activity so you know that's the sort of situation where a very complicated model could lead to problems debugging it you know as far as explainability and that sort of thing so i often joke with people that I don't care how you get the result. If you can get me tomorrow's interest rates with four dots on a napkin, I'm a happy guy. You know, simple as best. Yeah, that's that's exactly the approach that we that we took. Um, you know, like when you're when you're doing these optimizations, you don't need something that's that complex. The things that need to be complex are how you uh, how you do inference every day, making sure that your data is there every day so that it it will run. Like making sure that you have fail safes in place in case your model can't run for whatever reason. Like the engineering around it, and and you know we talk about ML engineering um, all the time. But I think really the problem is that sometimes maybe maybe this is me putting my software engineering hat again, and I think you'll continue to hear themes like that uh, <laughs> from me today. Um, but. I think a big problem is that when when the models are conceived, the end state isn't really thought about, like how it's going to get deployed, how it's going to get used. And I think sometimes it's very easy to go down and build something that's too complex that can't even be put into production because it's like a 10 model ensemble or something like that. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I think you and I can both wax philosophically about how the, the software development mindset folds into the world of machine learning and AI. I think, especially what you're saying, you know, this notion of thinking about how the model is going to be used in production and all of that. For any of our listeners that come from the financial space, especially anyone coming from electronic or algorithm trading, uh, they will definitely identify with what we're saying here. Let's dig in a bit more. Let's talk about this first model you wanted to mention. You were talking about the fall-off model. Tell me more about how that came about and what your team did with it since then? Yeah. Uh, so uh, let me let me um, take a step back and, and describe what fall off is. So um, we had we had this problem, and uh, essentially it, it's fall off. So think about when you have uh, a job that you need to install. You have three things that need to happen in order for you to be successful in installing that job that day. One, you need your product to be there. Um, two, you need your the person whose house you're going to be um, installing that needs to be there. And then the service provider needs to be available. So all three of those conditions need to be met in order for the job to just start. Um, that doesn't mean that it's going to finish. So um, we had a problem where for every, every um, actually uh, in services, we work on weekly weekly cycles. So for any given week, we have a fall off rate. So those are jobs that are going to get installed or where they were supposed to be installed, but they didn't get installed within that one week period. And we were trying to decrease the fall off rate. So any time that one of those three conditions ends up happening, um, whether the service provider is not available, available uh, the stuff's not there or the person's not available. And um, fall off is a pretty big problem because one, it uh, it causes a huge ripple effect in in our ability to install jobs. Uh, the ripple effect is if you miss installing a job, you essentially lose time because jobs take uh, a discrete amount of time to install. So if you lose that time, you have to move it to a forward date, which means that there's a job in the future that won't be able to be installed. And you end up losing capacity. So when you have uh, a high amount of fall off, you're losing installation capacity, um, and that's not good. And it causes uh, it causes you to miss revenue targets. It causes you to miss um, 
Uh, those are the, you know, like the Home Depot side of it, but then, you know, the customer experience side of it, you're calling the customer that week and he's already, or she's already set up time for that person to get there and do that. They might've taken time off work. It's just a poor experience for everyone. So what we did or what we tried to do was figure out a way to predict uh, up to 14 days out that a job wasn't going to get installed so that someone could make arrangements for it and, and reschedule the job when all of those conditions are going to be there. So I, I think I can talk about the financial aspects of this job so or of this model. So um, we're, we're thinking, you know, if you reduce fall off by like, 5%, you essentially increase your time available to install by 5%. And then all of those things can, can um, increase the amount of revenue that you'll realize week over week. Um, and then presumably you will accelerate your ability to install because you're no longer having um, missed opportunities for installs. That, that's, the, that's the problem um, in a nutshell. The the modeling side of it was pretty, pretty hard. We went through a lot of iterations uh, to get to where uh, it actually worked. So we, we first started trying to dig into, uh, into we, we started trying to text mine, essentially like looking for comments on jobs and saying like, why did this job fall off or this one fall off? Um, and that was pretty, it was, it was ambitious. And I think we were, uh, hoping that there was going to be more information there than there actually was um, <laughs> uh, with, with any um, NLP type data mining, you know, it sounds fun, but then you're like just parsing text at the end of it. So it ends up not being very fun. <laughs> um, so we kind of scrapped that idea. And then uh, we went to a, a more um, uh, traditional like machine learning type approach where we would just say, okay, what are all the conditions around a job that falls off and can we model them? Um, and that ended up working really, really well. So once we got it working to a, a pretty good accuracy, I think our, um, our precision for the recall that we're operating in is like 90% accurate. Nice. It's very, very good. Like um, you essentially just want to, you know, like if you're doing 10% recall, then 90% accurate, you're only going to get 10% of them, but like those ones are going to be right on the money. Um, those, those ones were super accurate. And honestly, the processes that we built around this, which is, you know, calling the customer, uh, making, uh, double checking the order going, uh, item by item to make sure that every single piece of that order is there. Cause even something as small as like, a a window screen can prevent something from getting installed or, you know, just like a, a little part of something. Um, and then, uh, and then also rescheduling with the service provider. Uh, we actually found that the service provider uh, behavior is one of the biggest drivers of fall off. Um, for example, like sometimes we'll see that um, we'll see that a service provider may be out of range for where they're supposed to be uh, assigned and they won't want to drive all the way out there. So they'll cancel the job the day of. There's so many so many jobs going on. Like it's hard to, it's hard for an operator to know like that's going to happen. Um, maybe if someone was very very in tune with their particular market and looking at it all the time, they would know. But um, this this model essentially calls people out on 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 bad behavior and gives us an opportunity to to fix it before it actually happens. Um, but designing the process took a long time as well. So. We went through a lot of um, iterations with the with the operational team uh, to deploy this. We went through lots of different versions of the playbooks, uh, what they were supposed to do, and the dashboards that were created uh, to to help them hone in on what those those uh, top ten percent um, jobs were. And yeah, it it was just a team effort in order to get this thing across the line. I mean, it took um it took a lot of people and a lot of a lot of talking and, and iterating in order to get this thing to work. Sure. But I can also see the value in all of this, you know, going back to what you said about this idea of being able to predict when a job is about to fall off and the model not living in isolation, right? It's part of an entire process. Like you said, this is about looping in the customers, doing everything else, uh, doing everything you can to smooth things over whenever possible. I think that goes a long way and it's well worth all of the effort you put in 
And something else you mentioned a minute ago when you're talking about the ripple effect caused by these jobs falling off, it sort of reminds me of the ripple effect caused when there's any sort of flight cancellation, right? Um, because of the hub and spoke model used by so many commercial airlines, one flight that, that goes awry, that stays grounded, even if, even if it just leaves late, that can cause ripple effect across the entire country. You know? And so for an airline to be able to predict when that's going to happen and catch it ahead of time can be insanely valuable for them. And I think you know, being able to sort of draw that parallel for our listeners who maybe don't come from the retail space or come from the construction space, would you say that's a fair parallel to what you're describing yeah. as far as the fall-off model? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, it, it's a very, very analogous problem for sure. And it might be too early to say this or to ask this, I should say, but, you know, the last couple of years with supply chain issues and all of that, it's been pretty intense. You know, I follow a couple of people in the, uh, in the construction and lumber trading biz on Twitter, and they've been talking about this for a while now where some, and it's just like you said, right? Something as simple as a screen door not arriving on the right day could throw off the entire schedule. So my question is, if it's not too early to ask, how has your model handled the last couple of years of supply chain disruptions with the pandemic and everything else? Has it been able to spot those jobs still? Or are you finding new features that frankly weren't present in your early training data that are indi- indi- indicative of this problem? It's still it's still doing really well. So we only ever signed up for that 10%. So I, I didn't really talk, uh, talk about how we size up opportunities, but um, I, I, can, I can go into a little, a little bit now. Um, essentially, yeah, essentially what we try to do is say, okay, we want to be able to fix this problem by X percent, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and if we do fix it by X percent, how much is it worth from a, from a revenue perspective? So we, we set targets like that at the very beginning to say, if we, can, if we can move the needle by this amount, we would save this amount of money or this amount of labor. Um, and then that gives us an idea of how big the problem is and whether we should do it or not. Um, in this case, I think, you know, 10% uh, savings and fall off is like several tens of millions of dollars. I don't remember exactly how much it was off the top of our head, but it, it's definitely worth worth uh, our time to build something like this. Um, honestly, I think the the biggest the biggest problem with the model itself right now is not necessarily uh, whether or not it can account for the uh, supply chain disruptions, but more what happens when we change an outcome of something. Uh, it's something that we talk about as a team a lot. Um, so what I, what I mean by that is, let's say you predict a job is about to fall off and you tell someone to go and change that job and then or do something about it and then it no longer falls off. You can't use that as training data anymore. So we've gotten in, we've got uh, several versions um, that are kind of working together to account for that. Um, because if you if you do change something, then and you can no longer use it as training data, but it actually would have fallen off because it was in your uh, top top uh, ten percentile of jobs that um, were going to fall off, then it should count as training data. So so what we tried to do was. Um, include those opportunities as training data in a future training session and use that to make sure that we are um, uh, accounting for those, uh, those records in the future um, and not losing, losing that data. Makes sense. Digging a little more into this, you mentioned going through a lot of iterations in order to get this out the door, which I mean, makes sense. Um, I'm guessing most of our listeners are fairly experienced data scientists. And so they realize it's very rare that you, you get that model to stick the landing on the first try. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what you learned iteration after iteration. In other words, was this more of a, a linear progression where each time it got X percent better, or was it just once in a while you would cycle through a few iterations, you wouldn't make it very far, and then something just really works the next time around? This one, we got really lucky. It sort of just worked the first time. No way. <laughs> yeah, it sort of just worked the first time. The, the problems that we ran into were not about whether the model was accurate, but whether people were going to use it. Interesting. Yeah. So that, that, that was a big, um, a big problem of why, uh, 
why it took us so long to roll this one out as well was that um, we needed to get more than just presenting it to our field leaders. We needed to be able to get our field leaders to adopt this into their own ecosystem and their own processes. That was extremely difficult because they already had their own process for following up on these jobs to prevent fall off. But um, they were just, like you were saying, in the construction industry, everyone is extremely uh, strapped for labor and time. So learning a new process, um, changing their behavior was very, very difficult. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to change people's behavior, it's, you're always going to, um, you're always going to hit roadblocks. That, that was honestly the, the hardest thing to overcome. I can see that, you know, some of the skepticism, I think all of us have experienced when it comes to machine learning is relinquishing control. It's, it's really easy. Right. Especially when you've been doing something yourself, you've had your own way of doing it for a long time. And this machine comes along and says, no, no, I have this. You start to wonder, well, do you really? I don't know. So I think something that might be helpful for a lot of our listeners out there then, since we've all seen this in, in our work, is what were some of the things you were able to do to help shift people's perception of this, to help them embrace it more? Or we can flip this around and you can instead talk about things you wish you had done instead to make that happen. Yeah, there's a lot of things we wish we had done um, <laughs> for sure. So when we um, when we found that there were certain parts of the country that were not adopting it um, to our liking, we really had to engage those particular field leaders to drive the adoption. There wasn't any way that they were going to listen to us necessarily. Uh, there wasn't anything that we could do to to do that. We had to we had to make sure that the leader of that particular part of the country was on board with our messaging and they were going to drive it to their their uh, their teams. Um, I think we probably should have done a much a little bit better job um, with the communication piece. I think um, looking back, I think we kind of did our part when we presented out how this thing was going to be used. But there wasn't any follow-up process to say uh, what what's working, what's not working with you. Um, some people would just send it to us directly, and we were able to incorporate that. Um, but having a formal process for that would have been would have been nice in the beginning. We eventually established one later, but not right away. Got it. All right, that makes sense. And I think um, if we can wrap up the pain points around developing and rolling out the fall-off model. Are there any other pain points that come to mind as far as this procedure for you? Um, just the life cycle. Um, I think I, I mentioned this before with the, with the previous model that we did in, in the consulting role, um, just the time that it takes to get something to production, even if you have a solid solution is it can't be understated. Um, it's just hard to, put things in production, even if you have all the software, right? It's still, I would say the process part is, uh, it, I, you know, it's really funny as I, I'm thinking about that, um, that process map where it says modeling is like this tiny little block. I'm, I'm trying to remember what, what diagram that's on, but in a data science, um, life in a life in the da a data scientist, the modeling block is super tiny and there's all this other stuff that goes around it. It's very, very true. Um, and it, it, I think that that paper came out like five or six years ago, and it has not changed at all. Yeah, I think we can say that the field is still learning as a whole, uh, which, which is fine. It's fair. I think we're, we're going to be learning for a while. But the plus side is that, you know, on the one hand, machine learning, you know, in our quotes here, it's a relatively new field, but it's, it stands on the shoulders of other sort of quantitative analysis fields that have come before it. So I do think that over time, we'll get better at this, but I definitely appreciate you sharing with the listeners this idea that, yeah, process and procedure are a big part of this. And the model, you know, similar to the paper you're talking about, I tend to describe it to people as the model, it sits in the center, but it's not the only piece. And getting everything right, both before and after the model is built is key for, for longer term success. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and honestly, it, it needs to be done with 
with your entire team and all of your partners together. And they all have to be on the same page with when it comes to this, because it can get derailed very easily. Sort of wrapping up the story of the fall-off model then, without revealing any secrets, because I know for a lot of companies, understandably, you know, they don't want to get too detailed on what, uh, what they share as far as what they're doing with machine learning. But to the parts that you can share, what do you think is next for this fall-off model? Do you just see more incremental improvements or do you see something bigger coming on, on the horizon? I don't think that we're going to make too many more modifications to this particular one um, in the near future. However, the idea behind preventing something from happening is not going away. I think our leaders definitely want it. So something that is on the horizon for us is uh, some type of escalation model. Um, we're, we're kind of working on that in the background right now to see if it's even possible to do something like that. Um, think like someone is not happy with, with something, um, whether it took too long or something didn't get there in time and they send uh, an angry Twitter message or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, we're looking at figuring out when those types of things happen and if we can uh, if we can get ahead of those types of things now obviously in a perfect world you'd have uh, the best customer support people and the best um, supply chain and all of that to to mitigate these things but sometimes they're unavoidable um, like accidents happen so trying to see if we can figure out a way to help those people out before they get to a state where they're just so fed up they'll never shop at home depot ever again that'd be very useful for pretty much any business out there being able to i mean it's i think an, an analog of this would be churn prediction right it's sort of a sort of similar in that you're trying to spot the problem before it becomes a bigger problem and headed off the pass which makes sense yeah now given that uh, i do want to be mindful of your time you're being very generous cutting some time out of your schedule for me there was one other story we were hoping to cover today uh, as sort of a different but related model you and your team built, and that was lead scoring. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the interesting things about lead scoring and the fall off is that um, it, it, they both use that foundation that I was talking about in the very beginning. Um, those those uh, foundational data sets that we built as infrastructure for the team were the basis of those models, um, you know, properties about their people's houses and things like that, um, were, were how we started each one of these things. Um, so to get into a little bit into lead scoring, we, with, with lead scoring, we wanted to essentially know, um, okay, so actually take a step back. Um, within, um, with any like type of lead business, there's this, what's known as a funnel. In the very top of the funnel, uh, you have leads. At the very bottom of the funnel, you have a sale. So um, in the top of the funnel, uh, we wanted to know when all of these leads were coming in, what is the likelihood that someone's actually gonna buy something with us? Or are they just kind of testing, testing the waters? Um, and we wanted to be able to take that information, like a probability score essentially, and use that to optimize work within uh, both our call centers and uh, with our field associates. So, so that they could better understand like how to divvy up their own time. Cause there's always a finite amount of labor and a finite uh, amount of time, uh, similar to the, the fall off model. You're essentially trying to optimize uh, time and with lead scoring, you're also trying to optimize labor resources uh, in a call center, perhaps. Um, so what we ended up doing with the lead scoring model was um, taking that uh, generic um, that generic customer data set and uh, taking all of the attributes about what that person is currently going through in terms of uh, their quoting and or their quoting process for whatever job that they're trying to get and then see uh, what, what would be the outcome of it and, and assign a probability to it so that you know, can use it in the call center. Um, what we did eventually with this was uh, 
we we put a lead scoring model in the call center to call leads by um, call call people who had already been quoted uh, by likelihood of conversion. And um, what this did was it allowed the call center to operate in a way where you know if you if you order if you order all of the jobs and you, you sort them by likelihood of conversion, you essentially make it so you don't have what's known as carryover in a call center. Because if you can, if you call all the people that are going to convert, like for sure, at the very, very top of the list, you uh, you immediately shorten your list. If it's more of a random list, and those people could potentially be at the bottom, your list doesn't shrink as quickly. So you're going to end up having more calls than you can possibly make day over day. Um, uh, that So one thing that I have to be clear about, that doesn't mean that we don't call the people at the bottom. They still get called. They just get called later than, um, than, the, than the person who can be uh, removed from the list because they're like ready to go. So uh, that creates a whole bunch of efficiencies um, when it comes to how to staff a call center, um, how much labor you need and things like that to make all of the calls for that day. Um, and it's been it's been running pretty successfully for the past year or so, um, just kind of in the background. It doesn't have a dashboard. Um, it just kind of sorts sorts the call list every day, and then and then uh, the people that are in the call center get get assigned what calls they need to be made, and then they click the next button, and then off they go. It's interesting because usually when people talk about applying AI inside of a business, one of the one of the common concerns you hear is that oh, AI is here to remove jobs. Right. And people have this interesting view that we will always have either humans or AI looking at some potential pile of work. And what it sounds like you've done here is you've built the system where the AI takes on some amount of work for the human to make them more efficient. And in other words, it sounds like this lead scoring model you've built is effectively a force multiplier for your call center, right? Yes, for sure. One of the things that I really hope that it will do eventually is um is uh, actually so let me let me explain a little bit about like how call centers um are measured and things like that there's this thing called like average handle time you're only supposed to spend so much time talking to a customer you're rated on all of these like metrics that are that are essentially like i mean they're really driving you to these to hold to these metrics and it's it's very you know, in, in a way, kind of like dystopian, like you have to like go super hard in order to get to these, to, to meet your goals and whatnot. And with, with something like this, you can have more, essentially have more freedom to converse with a customer because you're not trying to get to 30 calls in a day uh, because you know that this person is going to convert. So you can be, you know, you can say whatever it is that you need to say, you can have like dynamic ways of talking to people rather than it being super formulaic. I think that that would be a great outcome for something like this if it can if it can actually work and you work in a selling area. Now that this isn't going to work necessarily for um, a resolutions type call center where people are calling in and, and need help with something, but um, for a sales based one, it can definitely help. Makes sense. So let's dig into this a little more. You talked before about some of the technical side of the fall off model. Tell me more about the, to the, to the part that you can, tell me more about the technical side of this lead scoring. So was this another case where you just stuck the landing on the first try or did this take a few more iterations? No, this one was, uh, this one was very, this one was surrounded, uh, by lots of resistance. (laughs) 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 Um, uh, so when we, when we first started to, um, Actually, this one ha- this one has a lot of really cool feature engineering tricks that we did in this one, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. So, if um, so, when we were trying to build this model, um, uh, obviously it uses all of the housing characteristics and all of the customer characteristics. Those ones are obvious, but when we were trying to score the model or score the lead itself, uh, we found that it wasn't scoring high enough because we had this. We didn't we didn't bake the the operational rhythm of the business into the model. We just left the the end open. So if a job had not converted, so let, let, let's uh, this one's hard to describe without showing you a picture. But um, 
let's say, okay, so let's say um, in the call center, we're going to call you for 14 days. And if you don't uh, buy the thing within 14 days, then we give up calling you or you, or you say no. Um, in the model, we just said if it converted or never converted, then that was the targets that we used. But what we really should have done is we should have used that 14 day baking period to say, um, we were not successful at converting you within this 14 day period, because that's what we're allowed to do. Um, when, when we initially did it, we did not use that window, um, because we just didn't really think about it. It didn't occur to us that we had to have that, uh, have that filter in, in our training data. And, uh, when we made that change, our models accuracy shot up a lot. Um, because, you know, after 14 days, whether someone or not, someone converts or not, is not going to be an influenced by the call center. That person is making that decision to do it later on. Uh, for whatever reason, it, it, it made such a huge difference. Um, and, and the reason I'm saying this is because we had gone through several iterations of this as well. And we didn't think about this as a team until it was already, uh, it was already in a pilot phase or it might've already been deployed actually. And then uh, we thought about it one day and then we made the change and then it started doing so much better. I guess what I'm trying to say is like when you're doing feature engineering, people are thinking like, oh, well, I need to multiply this times this number, or there's probably some like hidden hidden value in um, doing like a cosine of this value or something like that. But even just how you structure your training data and, and how the data itself gets built out with the business rules is super influential to how you model things. Um, and we didn't even really think about it either. Uh, but now we think about it a lot since there's so much process wrapped around how data gets generated. You kind of have to put that into your, into how you set up your training data sets. Yeah, when you think about machine learning at a high level, it's really about translating real world concepts into a bunch of floating point numbers that you feed into an algorithm or what have you. And so how you come to those numbers will influence how the model thinks, right? Because as far as the model is concerned, its entire worldview is based on the training data. You know, in other words, all of those numbers you've fed it. So depending on how those numbers came to be, right, that will, that will shape the model's view of the world. But I do want to go back to something you said a second ago. You mentioned this word we, right? When you said, when we figured this out, tell me more about that we. I'm curious, was that we, you and your data science team, or did you have a number of um, subject matter experts or SMEs or other business stakeholders working with you in shaping these features? Um, yeah, it was, it was just our data science team. Um, it was me and the rest of the data scientists that are, that are on the team. Um, we occasionally will do um, like uh, retros and things like that to kind of break things down a little bit and say like what went well, what didn't go well. Um, you know, not like not not exactly uh, in the scrum sense of retros, but our, our team operates actually more in like a Kanban style. Um, if you want to talk about agile um, methodologies or whatever, but we we do retros uh, weekly and we talk about stuff like this and um, it just happened in conversation. Like, how can we make this thing better? Because I, th I think at the time, uh, and you asked this question earlier, like what were some of the roadblocks? Um, we encountered a roadblock with one of, um, one of our stakeholders and they didn't want us to deploy it because it wasn't accurate enough. Um, it was, uh, I think before we made this change, it was just barely better than random. So um, the team, we were challenged to say, okay, well, if we don't, if this thing's not, if this thing's barely better than random guessing, then what's the point of having it? So we, uh, we went to a brainstorming session together, together to figure out uh, how we could make it better. We couldn't come up with any new features, but we came up with that one. And that seems to be the magic one then. Let me zoom out for a second here. I, I think we have a few minutes left. There are a couple more questions I want to ask you about this, but there's something else sort of cropped up that you're talking about how this lead scoring model came to be. And I saw some echoes of this when you were talking about the fall off model. Um, what I'm seeing here, 
Pat, is is a lot of process, right? And you and I both come from more of a software dev background. Do you feel that your experience working as a software developer helped drive the importance of process into you? Do you think that's what do you think that's a big part of what you're able to bring to your work in machine learning? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, uh, I think process, well, I guess for me, I, I see a lot of uh, similarities in problems, whether they are software problems or process problems or whatever the problem is. Um, they're, they're, they're very easy to spot if you know what you're looking for. And I think with, with the stuff that we that we're that we're building right now obviously we're building machine learning models but you know there's all this other engineering that has to go around uh what we're building and when when i'm when i'm looking at a problem i'm thinking like okay well we need to build this thing we need to build this thing this process needs to change this person needs to the mindsets are of these particular roles need to change like this this is uh this is going to be too much work for them they're not going to use this um it can get it can get a little uh, daunting, I think, when you start thinking about things like that. But um, I think for us, it's really easy to start with, you know, what is the what is the problem that we're going to try and solve, um, and then work backwards towards the solution, or work uh, maybe not backwards, not work forwards towards solution in steps um, because it, there's there's seriously too much stuff to do if you're going to do all of it at once. But yeah, to to get back a little bit to your question, um, I definitely see. I haven't really like done software like as a as a career for a little bit now, um, but I definitely think that the way that like the thought processes that you develop as a software engineer are very applicable to all kinds of things, um, and not just software. All right, Pat, this has been great. Well, like I said, I didn't want to eat up too much of your day. I appreciate you giving us so much of your time to talk about your work at the Home Depot. In closing, though, let's talk a little bit more about work at the company. I mean, first question, I know that everyone is hiring these days because data science and machine learning are such hot skills, but I have to ask, are you hiring right now? Yeah, we are, actually. Um, I currently have a, um, I've been interviewing for a senior manager position on our team, um, and we have an open data scientist role on the team as well. Um, so yeah, we have two open positions on my team now, uh, Home Depot has, I think we have quite a few data scientist openings across the entire organization. Um, mine is one of many data science teams. There's uh, space planning, supply chain online. Um, the pro team has its own data science team. And then there's also one that's embedded in finance as well. Um, so there's quite a lot of data scientists across the company, um, and they're always looking uh, for new talent. To the best that you can generalize, you know, let's talk more about what you think data scientists and machine learning engineers would enjoy about working at Home Depot and where your team is going and all of that. Yeah, for sure. I think retail, um, I, I, you know, if you don't work in one of the fan companies, um, retail is one of those places where if you want to make a huge impact in the company and you have some really good ideas, it's definitely possible. Uh, it, it, especially inside of Home Depot, um, people are very willing to let you experiment. We have a very entrepreneurial culture at Home Depot, um, which has definitely helped me helped me a lot in my own career. Um, and you get the freedom to experiment that way. Um, and the leaders that I have that I've worked for have been amazing. Um, they've definitely helped in in all ways, and I know I mentioned uh, a peer at the very beginning, but um, you know my the mentors that I've had over the years and and the the leadership has just been incredible. And uh, yeah, you know I love working at this place. It's a it's a really fun place to work. Where do you think your team is going next? You know I think that we could we we really are thinking about taking that lead scoring project and expanding it to the rest of the business um not just for the call centers but for lots of other things our our team really has a as a mindset of building things that scale and and reusable that can be scalable and reusable um so when we build something it's not just a one off um and we're planning on taking a lot of the things that we built and, and implementing them in other parts of the company last question for you 
what sort of general closing thoughts do you have for our listeners? What sort of things do you feel you would want to share that they should know? Yeah, I I hope that um, if if uh, anything you've taken away from this is that you don't have to have a a background in data science in order to get into it. Um, it's very just like software engineering. It's very uh, open if you're willing to learn. Um, there's ample amount of resources out there to get into this, and that's honestly one of the things that I love the most about this particular field is how easy it is to uh, learn from others, um, whether they're uh, whether you're reading a GitHub repo or reading a paper or or reading. Hacker News or Slashdot, um, there's so much information out there and uh, it's, it's honestly, it's hard to keep up. But if you want to uh, get into this uh, field, it's, um, this is a great time to do it. Well, Pat, once again, thank you so much for spending some time chatting with me and chatting with our listeners about your work at the Home Depot. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I suspect by the time we edit this and get it out, uh, the rest of our listeners will enjoy it as well. So thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you so much, Q.